We are now known by the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and united as the Church, the body of Christ. Made new in the fullness of his love, because in Christ all things are made new. Hey everybody, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Really, really glad you're here. If you're worshiping at Aurora or Highland Square or Restoration or just tuning in, glad that you've joined us. All right, this weekend we kick off a new series, 10 weeks in the book of Ephesians. This is going to be great. Ephesians is actually a letter, and it's not even a very long letter. If you were to print it out like an email, it would only take three or four pages, but it is packed. And to try to do it in 10 weeks is a little bit like trying to go through the whole Smithsonian Institute in 10 minutes. Uh, and that's why we wanted to do Ephesians together. Uh, so we have created this booklet for you that you can go through it in your community group. And, and then even if you're not in a community group, you ought to grab one of these books uh, so that you can study it at home and just go through it, it will, we feel like something powerful will happen if everybody in the church marinates in the same truth at the same time of this uh, great book of Ephesians, all right? I love Ephesians, and I, uh, I think you will too. So, Let's uh, dive in. we got a lot to cover. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read our first passage for this series. Uh, this is Ephesians 1. Uh, I'll be reading verses 3 through 14. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word, and it's true. Holy cow. There's a ton there. Uh, and we could go in all different directions. In fact, I'll tell you this. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, uh, preachers, Tim Keller from uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, when he preached through 
Ephesians, he took 15 weeks to get through the passage that I just read. We're doing it in one. So we got to do Ephesians together. You got to dig into it more on your own. But uh, Paul starts out this book by by giving the whole scheme of salvation in one really long run-on sentence. In the original Greek, verses 3 through 14, one sentence. It's like Paul gets on a roll and it just gushes out of him and he doesn't even stop long enough to put a period at the end of the different ideas. Now, what's interesting is that this The scheme of salvation is from a particular perspective, and perspective is important because you can look at the exact same thing from two different perspectives and see some totally different things. All right, I'm going to show you a a little video taken by this drone. These things are amazing. And uh, this little video is going to start at eye level, and then it's going to change and it's uh, of a place that you might be familiar with. And as soon as you recognize what you're looking at in the video, I want you to raise your hand. All right, it's not going to take very long, but here's the video. Go ahead. All right, good. <laughs> Some of you are way too competitive. You're like, oh, I got it. <laughs> I know, clock tower. Um, most of you know that was downtown Hudson, right, at the clock tower. And uh, what's interesting, of course, it starts at eye level, which is the way we live, and then it zooms up. And so if you were walking around downtown, you would experience it a certain way, but if you could go up, three or 400 feet, you would experience it in a whole different way. Ephesians does that sometimes. Ephesians, you'll be, you'll be reading along, and all of a sudden, Paul will pull up three, 400 feet to a different perspective and show you things from a different perspective about your life. And it's so important because we all live our lives at eye level, right? We all go through our lives in that way, and you you may be having this experience right now where in your life things seem chaotic, it seems like it's just a mess, and you don't know what's going on or what God's trying to do, and it doesn't seem like he's got a plan at all if he's involved at all in your life, and you're discouraged and frustrated, and you feel like you have no hope, and then sometime you need to pull up and ask God to show you what your life is like from a different perspective. And a lot of times that happens when we, when we look back on our lives. I always think of this, the Old Testament character, Jacob, who had a really tough life. I mean, Jacob had a, a completely messed up family. Uh, he didn't get along with his older brother. Uh, he ended up betraying his older brother in a couple of different ways and had to run away from home because his brother wanted to kill him. He goes to live with his uncle, who becomes his father-in-law. That's messed up. And then his father-in-law cheats him a bunch of times, so he runs away from his father-in-law, and his father-in-law runs after him, and he runs smack dab back into his brother. He's got a bunch of kids, and they all fight. In fact, they hate each other, and his favorite son gets killed by 
some wild beast, at least that's what he thinks for over a decade, he thinks his favorite son is dead. But at the end of Genesis, when he's an old man looking back on his life, it's like God helps him pull the drone up to look at his life, and he says this, God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. It's like he finally saw in all the mess that God was weaving together something that God did have a plan and was working his plan. All right, so Paul starts out this letter to the Ephesians giving us this scheme of salvation, but he gives it to us from the perspective of God, how God sees what it means that you're saved. And there are three questions that we're going to ask and answer about this passage from God's perspective. How, what, and why. How we're saved, what it means to be saved, and then why we are saved. How we're saved, what it means to be saved, and then why we're saved. First, how we're saved. Let me read verses 3 through 5 and then verse 11. That's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Then verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All right, I realize that I just read the word predestined twice and you are dying for me to explain it in a way that it quits bugging you. Because almost everybody is bugged by the idea of predestination or election. This is what the Bible says. So I'm going to give it a rip. All right, here we go. Um, This is from God's perspective. The way God sees your salvation is this. He chose you. He chose you. Now, one of the reasons that that bugs us is because from eye level, the way we experience our lives, that's not the way you experience getting saved. The way you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have received Jesus as your Savior, the way it happened was this, that you had something happening in your life where you began to feel this desire for God, and so you began to ask questions, and you, you had a friend who began to share with you, or you ended up coming to church, and you, you ended up finally hearing this good news that we call the gospel And you understand that Jesus did something for you on the cross that you couldn't possibly do for yourself. And when the the gospel finally sinks in and you come to that amazing realization that God demonstrated his love towards you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And you realize that even though you're more deeply flawed than you've ever wanted to admit to anyone, even yourself, because of what Jesus has done, you're more deeply loved than you ever dared to dream And so you pray to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. And you throw yourselves into the arms of Jesus. And you decide to get baptized. You get baptized in an I am new t-shirt. And you just are pumped because you searched. You found Jesus. You prayed and you received Jesus as your Savior. And you're saved. 
That's from your perspective. Then the drone goes up high. And God says, oh, let me tell you from my perspective. You think you chose me. Oh, no, no, no. No, you didn't. I searched for you. I looked for you. I found you. I chose you. I saved you. And the reason that God says that is that he says, I chose you because you would never have chosen me. And that's what bugs people about predestination. That's the first thing. Because whenever I talk to somebody and they talk about predestination, they'll say, well, if we're predestined, then that means we have no choice. Not really. Let me explain. That's why I have these two bowls up here. Let's say I had a lion here. And uh, this lion, I, had, I put a big piece of raw meat, like a big steak in this bowl, and I put salad in this bowl. And the lion had a choice between the two bowls. Right? A lion, a thousand times out of a thousand, would choose the meat. Free choice. A thousand times out of a thousand, lion would choose the meat. Why? It's his nature. It's his nature to want meat more than salad. The Bible says when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when all of us rebelled against God, what happened is we didn't lose our ability to choose. Something happened to our nature. This is the way it's described in Romans. It says, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right. What that means is this. When I say something happened to your nature, if you put God's desire for you, God's deep desire in this bowl, and you put your deep desire in this bowl, what you want to do in this bowl, what God wants you to do in this bowl, a thousand times out of a thousand, when those two things are in conflict, you will choose what you want, unless something happens to your nature. And that's what it means to be born again. That's the whole idea of being born again, that God does something to your nature, which is why in Romans, later on, it will say you're no longer a slave to sin. Paul says that once you become a Christian, once your nature is changed by God and by the gospel, then you're no longer a slave, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, that when there's a conflict between what God wants and what you deeply want to do, you can choose what God wants you to do, and that's called obedience or being a disciple. Now, a lot of times we don't choose that. We still choose what we want to do, but that's what it means to be born again. So when we are, are the problem with our nature is not that our chooser is broken, it's that our nature is broken. The other thing that happens is that if... Um, if you decided to choose Jesus instead of Jesus choosing you, if it originated with you, there's, there's, there are problems both ways. I'll get to the problem with God choosing you in just a minute. But let's say you have something inside of you that made you choose Jesus, that it initiated with you. 
That means in this bowl that is you, there was a single tiny little spark of desire for God that was fanned into flame somehow, and you decided to choose God. That means that deep down inside of you is something that makes you better than your unsaved neighbor. And the Bible says that's not true. There is nothing inside of you that makes you better than anyone else when it comes to a relationship with God. Not a single thing. That's why the Scripture over and over again describes us as being dead spiritually because there's no like levels of being dead. You're like dead, 100% dead, right? That's the thing. All of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. So God has to choose us, and that's the first thing. Now, the very next question that people say is this. All right, if we are predestined and God chooses us, even though it feels like we choose him, but God chooses us and we don't choose him, why didn't God choose everybody? Doesn't that seem unfair? Right? All right. Let me show you another passage. At the end of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is talking to... um, his disciples, right after the resurrection. And he's uh, walking along with his disciples. And he turns to Peter, and he says, kind of out of the blue, Peter, uh, you're going to die a martyr's death. Things aren't going to end well for you. And Peter, he says something like this. He goes, "Uh, well, okay. Um, I guess that's okay. And I I will believe that that's fair, for that to happen to me, as long as I know how you're going to treat everyone else. So what's going to happen to him? And he points to John. And this is Jesus' response in John chapter 21, verse 22. Jesus said to Peter, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. (laughs) Okay, I should get this. I just, I don't know. Different things crack me up. Peter says, uh, I kind of want to know what's going to happen to other people, and then I'll make a determination whether you're being fair to me. And Jesus, when he says, what is that to you? It's kind of a polite way of saying, hey, Peter, mind your own business. Right? What Jesus is saying is, I, I'm not going to, I am the same. My character is consistent. And you have to trust that with everyone else, I am the same, I have the same compassion, the same love, the same justice, the same goodness. The thing you need to worry about is your relationship with me. You follow me. So that's how Jesus handles predestination. That's how I just handle it. Try it. All right. Anyway, yeah, you got a problem with that? You got a problem with Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's the first question. How? From God's perspective, how you became saved is he chose you. Second question, what does it mean to be saved? This is what it says, Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 8. He says, uh, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Two great movements happen when you become a Christian. The first movement is you move from being alienated to being adopted. And the second movement is you go from being filled with guilt and shame to being washed and forgiven. Those are the two great movements. First movement, from being alienated to being adopted. Adoption is such a great image. It's such an amazing image that the Bible uses to describe what it means to be saved. Because adoption is so intimate. It is so holistic. It changes everything about you. If you're a child and you have been adopted, everything changes. I used this, uh, this story a few weeks ago. I read it in this book uh, by Lee Strobel called The Case for Grace. It's a story of a woman named Stephanie Fast. She was born in Korea at the end of the Korean War. She was half American, half Korean. She was abandoned. She went through terrible, terrible things. And at the age of nine, she's in an orphanage, and she gets adopted. She's emaciated. She is uh, filled with parasites. She is covered with sores, and she's adopted by these, this American couple called the Merwins. And this is the way Stephanie describes what it felt like when she finally understood what it meant to be adopted. It says, the Merwins had expected to adopt a boy and, named him, and name him Stephen, so they gave their new little girl the name Stephanie. Their house in Korea, modest by Western standards, seemed huge to her. I had never seen a refrigerator, a flush toilet, or a bed before. I thought, wow, this will be a fun place to work. They even had eggs, which only affluent Koreans could afford. They cleaned me up, gave me antibiotics, and got me healthy. They kept feeding me, tucking me into bed, buying me new clothes, but never putting me to work. Did that confuse you? Yes. I wondered why for several months, but I was afraid to bring it up to them. We'd go into the village, and everybody I'd meet would, be like, would treat me like I was something wonderful. I couldn't understand. I had been a Tugi, that's a half-breed. But now I was being treated like a princess. Then one day, a girl said to me, you smell American. I said, what do you mean? She said, you smell like cheese. <laughs> Korean children always said foreigners smelled like cheese. I said, no, I'm not an American, but those Americans are really funny. They haven't put me to work yet. They're really treating me nice. She looked at me with a surprised expression and said, Stephanie, don't you realize that you're their daughter? That idea had never occurred to me. I said, no, I'm not their daughter. And she said, yes, you are. You are their daughter. I was astonished. I turned and ran out of the room and up the hill toward my house, thinking to myself, I'm their daughter. I'm their daughter. I'm their daughter. Oh, that's why I've been treated this way. That's why no one's beating me. That's why nobody's calling me a tugi. I'm their daughter. I ran into the house to my mom, who was sitting in a chair, and I declared in Korean, I'm your daughter. She didn't speak Korean yet, but a worker said to my mom, she's saying she's your daughter. With that, big tears began to run down my mommy's face. She nodded and said to me, yes, Stephanie, you're my daughter. How did that make you feel? Stephanie had been speaking so candidly about her life 
including unthinkable mistreatment and suffering, abandonment and rejection, humiliation and pain. But now she was flustered. This time words failed her. It was, she began, then threw up her hands. There are no words, Lee. There are simply no words. Sometimes language cannot contain grace. Paul the Apostle is like Stephanie's little friend who says to you, you are his son. You are his daughter. And you get to run, run and throw your arms around the father of heaven and earth. And you say to him, wait, I am your son. I am your daughter. And God himself says, yes. Yes, you are mine. Because I chose you. That's adoption. Then, the second movement is from guilt and shame to uh, forgiveness, being washed and forgiven. This is what it says. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. There's a reason Paul uses that kind of language. The riches of his grace that he lavishes on us. And the reason he uses that language is because it's no small thing to heal the human soul. Because it's not a small wound that you have in your soul. Guilt and shame are connected, but they're not the same. Guilt is what you feel for something that you've done. Shame is what you feel because of who you feel you are. Jesus says, I come to heal your soul of guilt and shame. So when he talks about lavishing the riches of his grace on us, I always think of, um, I always think of this. For uh, in about a 10-year period, I went on about 15 mission trips to the Dominican Republic with different groups. And I learned a lot about myself. Um, Abraham, Abraham Maslow has a hierarchy of human needs. Uh, I developed my own hierarchy of Joe's needs on these mission trips. And uh, what I found is that uh, I really, top of my list, I needed good food and pure water. And I knew that from the one trip we took where we didn't have good food or good water. And we all got sick. The second thing I knew I needed was sleep. And I, I figured that out on the trip that we went uh, on, and we had good food and we had good water, but uh, we didn't have air mattresses, and we slept on a cement floor. And that was horrible. But the third thing that I needed that kind of took me by surprise is that I needed to get clean. There were times when I longed to be clean, and I learned that on a trip where we had good food and good water, we had beds to sleep in, but we had no running water and no way to, to wash. And so we'd go to work in the 100-degree heat with cement, and we'd go back to our place, we'd eat our dinner, and then we'd lay down with just crusty cement on us and dirt and grime and sweat, wake up the next day and do the same thing. We did that for three days, and on the fourth day when we came back, we still didn't have any water. We all piled in vans, 
and we went to this river where there was a breakwater, and a breakwater was like uh, maybe this high, and it was like a waterfall with thousands of gallons of water just cascading over, and I sat underneath that waterfall, and it was almost too much pressure, almost too much water. And I sat there for like 20 minutes until every speck of cement was washed away. Every molecule of grime was, was cleaned off of me. That's what forgiveness feels like. You may have guilt and shame that has been encrusted on you from the time you were a little child because of the way you were treated. And Jesus says, I will lavish on you the riches of my grace until that gaping wound in your soul is actually healed. That's what it means to be saved. Last question is why? Why are we saved? And this is what it says, verses 9 through 11. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will, According to his purpose, remember the drone is up high. This is what God says. According to the mystery of his will, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is what that says. <clears throat> you know, we're a very individual, individualistic society, which there's some good things to that and some bad things. The bad thing is we tend to turn everything in on ourselves. And we think that we were saved so that we could experience peace, so that we could experience forgiveness, so that we could have the hope of heaven. But God says, no, no, there's a bigger, there's, I have a bigger plan. There's something else that's happening. And what God is saying is this. That there's a, an entire meta-narrative to the Bible. And it happens in like, like a play that happens in four acts. And these are the four acts. There's creation, there's the fall, there's redemption, and there's the restoration of all things. Creation is when God created all things in their beauty and harmony and goodness. And it is absolutely perfection. And then there's the fall, where that introduces sin into the world, and the, the brokenness inside of you, the brokenness of relationship, the brokenness of our world. And then there's redemption, when Jesus comes to redeem us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when he does that, he sparks the last act, which is restoration. And restoration is when God takes all things in heaven and on earth, and he bends them back to where they should be. And there is harmony and goodness and perfection and wonder again. And what Paul starts out this letter to the Ephesians, he's saying, you want to know why you were saved? Do you want to know why God did what he did for you? Because you are part of him bending all things in heaven and earth back to the restoring the goodness of all that is. Do you want to know why our church does what it does? Do you know, want to know why we have a ministry called Restore to try to impact people who are addicted to opiates? Do you want to know why we have uh, a chapel in the juvenile detention center called Restoration Chapel? Do you want to know why we're involved with Rahab ministry that involves helping trafficked people? You know why? 
Because what God has done for us, he saved us to have us be the first fruits, the beginning of this restoration process where he brings all things back to himself in heaven and on earth for his glory to the praise of his name. That's why you're saved. So Paul starts out this great letter to the Ephesians by telling all of us this scheme of salvation from God's perspective. How you are saved, he chose you. What it means to be saved, you've been adopted. You are his son. You are his daughter. That changes everything. And you have been washed and you've been forgiven and that wound of your soul has been healed. And why? Because you are part of the restoration of all things in heaven and on earth to the praise of his glorious name. Ephesians together, transformed 2018. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and uh, we are so grateful that you are a God that has pursued us, that has chosen us, that has saved us and you have healed the deep wound inside of us i pray that you would continue to do that i pray that you will help us to see how we are to participate in the restoration of all things as you bring all things back into harmony with yourself to the praise of your glorious name thank you we pray this in jesus name our savior amen